All right, good morning. Good morning, good morning. Hey, my name is Aaron. I'm the pastor here at New City Church. We're grateful that you're here today for those who have... Uh, continue to come back and worship here. We're grateful. And for those who might be visiting, we're grateful for you as well. If you have any questions about our church, we'd love to hear from you with our Connect cards that are on our kiosk tables around in this level of the, of the building. And then you can also go online and fill those out. And we'd love to hear from you, answer any questions that you have, as well as be praying for any prayer requests that you have. So please take that into consideration and fill those out. Next week is our Thanksgiving feast. Okay couple of cheers for that. Um, yes, yeah, so we're going to have a Thanksgiving feast next Sunday after our service. We're going to have a turkey provided by the church. And because I like cranberry sauce, we might provide some of that too. But everyone else needs to bring a side to share. Um, and we'd love for you to do that. You can uh, indicate what you're bringing on our app. I've got a, an announcement on the church news part of our app that you can uh, uh, reply to with what you're bringing. Um, or you can ask me for more details. Um, just know that I don't cook very well, so I might tell you to just make a run to McDonald's or something like that for the Thanksgiving feasts. And that, that might not work out well. Um, so uh, please indicate on there. We'd love for you to, to be a part of that. We also are having a very important household meeting next Sunday. Uh, it's before our service at 9 o'clock. We're going to be talking about some upcoming events that uh, I would like to plan and have some help with. Uh, as a church, and so we'd love for you to be a part of that. I'm going to explain what those are uh, next week at that. If you're a member or a very regular attender, you're welcome to come to our household meeting. That's for the folks who call this church their home, so please uh, put that on the calendar as well. And then we are going to be, uh, as a church, trying to get 1,000 signatures for a petition for an equal protection bill that will be on the ballot hopefully next fall to vote on. So uh, we'd love for you to be involved with getting those signatures because a thousand is quite a bit for a church our size. We'd love for you to, to participate in that. You can contact uh, Kristen Alcott, uh, Lori Engel, or Alethea Wingert for more details, or myself for sure, um, and we'll get you that information. Uh, ladies' hospitality team, I'm going to talk about that at our household meeting next week. So if you want more inf info and details on that, uh, you can come to that as well. That um, is most, if not all, of the announcements. There's, again, more stuff on our website. We'd love for you to visit that, check that out. Um, but if you would, stand with me. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 24 today. We're going to have some big words. Abomination of desolation today uh, as we go straight through the book of Matthew. This is Matthew 24. We're going to be in verses 15 through 28 today. These are the words of God. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation uh, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect." See, I've told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. 
For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. These are the words of God. Let's pray together. Father God, we're grateful to be in your presence today on this, the Lord's Day, where we come in worship of you. We pray that our hearts would be uh, turned towards you to hear from your word, to take communion together, to sing together, to pray together, all for your glory and for your name's sake. Uh, we pray that uh, those who are struggling with issues in relationships, finances, uh, health issues, whatever it might be, God, we ask for your healing, for your protection, and for your wisdom. We ask, God, that our state would continue to uh, grow in terms of its understanding of God and knowledge of God, and that we would, as a people, repent and believe in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. That it wouldn't just mean something for our private uh, religious uh, uh, life, but that it would mean something for the world, that we would be salt and light in the places that you've called us. I pray that this church, as well as many churches in our state and in our city and in this area, would seek to glorify you by spreading the gospel, by proclaiming it in all ways to all people, that all of Christ for all of life would be our mantra and that we would continue to serve you in whatever way you've called us to. I ask God that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have a seat. I'm getting a touch of feedback Jared, just a little, so if you want to help me with that, I'd appreciate that. Um, I want to start with this introduction. It's important to hermeneutically, and that hermeneutics is a, a fancy term for the art and science of biblical interpretation, but it's an important humor, uh, hermeneutical principle to come to the text of Scripture with humility. And by that, I mean we don't stand over Scripture and interpret what it means for, by what we think or feel. We interpret what it means based on what it says. So we are, in essence, under the authority of it. We are, uh, we are reviewed under the authority of Scripture. And this particular chapter, chapter 24 of Matthew and some following chapters, has widely different interpretations within the Christian church. There's two views that I want to talk about today. I'm going to throw out some big words so that you can impress everyone at the water cooler this week. Um, I don't know if you talk about these things at the water cooler, but here we go. There's a view called the preterist view, which means that everything that we're going to look at in the book of Matthew, or excuse me, in this chapter of Matthew, in the Olivet Discourse, the preterist view would say that most, if not all of it, has happened in the past. It has already come to be. And then there is the futurist view, that everything talked about in the Olivet Discourse will happen in the future. The important distinction and this is as plain as um, the nose on our faces. The important distinction is Jesus' own words where he says over and over again, these things will happen in this generation. These things will happen in this generation. At an opportunity, I mentioned last week that there was a gentleman named uh, C.I. Schofield. I don't know what the C.I. stands for. I think it's Charles Schofield, if I'm not mistaken. But he wrote a study Bible in the early 1900s, I believe. And my mom gave me as a gift the new international version, the old version that's a little bit better than the new ones. But he gave me an old version, or she did, of the NIV Schofield Study Bible. And I found it this week as I was looking through some books. And I opened it up to chapter 24 of Matthew to read the notes um, that Mr. Schofield had put uh, in his study Bible. 
And he says, when it's in this generation, it doesn't mean in this generation. And that was kind of where it was left. He had gone into some, some gymnastics about what that meant, but it does mean in this generation. I was confused for decades about this. I thought that in this generation did not mean in this generation. So uh, just recently in the last, I would say, 5, 10, maybe 15 years, I've begun to understand that when Jesus says in this generation, he means that these things will happen in this generation. I mentioned that atheists have taken this particular Olivet Discourse and they've said, because you Christians believe that all of this is in the future, Jesus must be a liar because he said it's going to happen in this time frame, in this generation of people, in the lifetime of the people that he's speaking to, these things will happen. You Christians believe that it will happen in the future, therefore the Bible is inaccurate, Jesus might be a liar, and therefore atheism is true. So I, I mention that because it's very important that we get this right, and we do so in humility. We read the text as it was uh, uh, written to us, and not what we want to read into it. The clearest reading of the Olivet Discourse, of the text even that we look at today, leads us to believe that Jesus means what he says when he says that this generation that he's speaking to will see these things. Now, he is the final prophet to bring them the good news of the kingdom, Jesus is, and to tell them to repent and believe. And he's talking a lot in the most recent chapters and passages that we've looked at about judgment. And the judgment will come for all of the Jewish betrayal and rejection of Jesus and the other prophets. He says that judgment is going to also come in this generation. There's no other word to describe it. It's going to be horrific. It's going to be horrific. He says in the prior passage we just looked at last week that many people will be led astray. <clears throat> there will be wars and rumors of wars that will lead people astray. Nation will rise against nation and people will think, oh, this is the end. Um, they'll be led astray thinking that this must be the end, but Jesus says, remember, the end is not yet. Now, he's speaking to these people. He's saying, you're going to hear rumors of wars. You're going to see nations rise against nations. Just know those are the birth pangs of what is to come. But it's not yet. The end hasn't come. There's going to be many led astray. They're going to be led astray by fear. There's going to be famines in the land. One in particular killed 20,000 people in and around Jerusalem um, towards the end of this particular generational time at, at the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Killed 20,000 people of famine. Uh, earthquakes are going to happen. Remember, Jesus caused one at the crucifixion, right? The temple curtain was torn in two as a result of earth, uh, earthquakes. If you read Josephus and other historians, um, historically, there were many earthquakes recorded in the first century about the time of Jesus until the time of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. Uh, there's going to be persecution of people who turn to Christ, so there's going to be people that believe Jesus is the Messiah. They're going to turn to Christ. They're going to become saved people. They're going to become covenant people of Christ. And all of the nations, it says, are going to hate them. Israel included is going to hate those who turn to Jesus Christ. And then there's going to be an, a, a great apostasy. That's a word that Americans need to, I think, get a little bit familiar with because we see that even in our own culture. Uh, apostasy is a falling away a betrayal, if you will, of Christ, a falling away from Christ. There's going to be that in this first century time frame in this generation. And there's going to be false prophets. They'll do many signs and wonders. 
They might even drive a, a Bentley. They might look like they got it all dialed in and together, but they're going to be false prophets giving false messages and predictions about what is to come. But Jesus says the gospel will still be proclaimed throughout the whole world. The oike uh, meno, um, I pronounced that wrong, but the oike meno, oiko meno, I can't remember. John Huth would know that. Is John Huth here? He might be out today. I had it practiced, I promise. But the world, the whole world, the oikomeno, the whole known world will hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is Jesus talking about? He's talking about the entirety of the known world at that time, which is the Roman Empire. And once the gospel is proclaimed throughout the whole known world, Paul goes to the Gentiles, other uh, apostles go to the Jewish people throughout the known world at that time. The whole world hears the proclamation of the gospel. It then says the end will come. Now, a lot of Christians read that and they say, okay, it says in this generation. That doesn't mean in this generation, it means future generations. Uh, it has to because it says the end will come. He's not talking about the complete and total final end. He's talking about the end of an age, an aeon. The end of the age is the age of the old covenant and the old covenant people. The end of that age is coming to Israel. It's coming to Jerusalem. And there will be a new covenant will be established. And Jesus is going to save those who are his father's people. If you want to read about that, read the Gospel of John. It talks about that in detail. New covenant has come. Jesus is going to save those who are his father's people. And there is no special way to come to the father than the way through Jesus Christ the Son who is the Messiah. Now I mentioned I found my, my old Schofield Bible. Charles Schofield was a person who believed in dispensationalism. This was a gift of my mom, whom I greatly respect and admire. God rest her soul. She's with the Lord now. But I found this Bible this week, and I read the notes uh, on a couple things. But notes in this chapter on chapter 24 basically boiled down, his, his notes boiled down to this. The end couldn't have come because these things did not happen. Now, Charles Schofield, I don't know if he read Josephus. I assume that he might have. But our knowledge of first century history either has been purposely hidden or we have been ignorant or some kind of combination of the two. All these things that Jesus predicted happened in the first century and that generation saw them come about. So it's not a great argument to say that they couldn't have happened because they couldn't have happened. All of the classical Christian people know that that's a logical fallacy. I don't know which one. But it, it couldn't have happened because it couldn't have happened is not a good argument. Humility would respond this way. What if they did? I'd ask that question about, I don't know, like I said, within the last 5 to 15 years, I've been asking the question, what if Jesus, when he said, in this generation, literally meant in this generation? And I had to have some humility because I was a staunch believer in dispensationalism, premillennialism, some of those uh, big words that you can look up maybe later, uh, eschatology-wise. But in humility, I had to ask, what if these things happened? What if Jesus really meant what he said? Well, one thing that is clear to have happened that people think is yet to happen is this thing called the abomination of desolation. That leads us to verse 15 to 28. 
It's a prophecy that Jesus gives of an abomination, something so terrible that it was hated by God and something so terrible that it made the holy place desolate. So we're going to talk about that for a few minutes. Uh, Jesus, as he starts this particular section, is speaking to his disciples. And he says, this generation is going to see these things. And the disciples have just gotten done showing Jesus the wonder of the temple buildings. He said, Jesus, look at these temples. Look at the temple area here, all these buildings. This is beautiful. It's ornate. It's an amazing building. And Jesus says to them, um, not one stone is going to be left on another of, these, uh, of this temple. This temple is going to be completely destroyed. And he also says earlier in the text that a new temple will rise in three days, meaning he is the temple. We also believe that the church is his temple. He abides in us. He dwells in us. But Jesus is the replacement of the Old Testament temple. Uh, it's a description of this move from the age of the Old Covenant to the age of the New Covenant in Jesus' blood. And so he tells them what you're going to expect when this abomination of desolation, uh, before it comes, this is what it's going to look like when, when, it's about to, when it's about to happen. Many are going to be martyred prior to the destruction of the temple in AD 70, but there are other disciples who are following Jesus and they were spreading the testimony to those who, the, that they were preaching to so that they could understand, hey, when this abomination of desolation happens, you need to think about some things and do some things. So they would have understood all these things in light of current history in the first century. <coughs> Excuse me. When you see the abomination of desolation, let's talk about what that is. He says, uh, he mentions Daniel here. By the way, if he didn't mention Daniel, then a prophecy that was mentioned in Daniel, in chapter 9 of Daniel, 11 of Daniel, and 12 of Daniel, would only have uh, pertained to the first temple being destroyed. But because he mentions it here, he's talking about another or second destruction of the second temple that was, that was made. It's going to look like the one that Daniel uh, prophesied about in uh, Daniel 9, 11, and 12. The abomination of desolation is spoken of by Daniel in those three chapters. And he talks about this period of three and a half years where someone is going to desecrate the temple and is going to render it desolate. Now, this is really important. Um, Christians, just like other people who aren't believers in Christ, they love to blame shift. They love to make excuses. They love to point the finger at other people. And so a lot of people look at, yeah, the abomination happens because all these Gentile dogs or pagans or whoever it was come into the temple and they do these bad things and it, desolate or it desecrates the temple. And so God, um, because of that, is going to destroy the temple. That is not how it works. The people who desecrate the temple and render it desolate are the people of God. The people of God are going to desecrate the temple, and the Romans are going to help participate in the second desecration of the temple. But there's two things to consider, and I know we're talking a lot about historical things and some prophecy here, but hang with me. There's two things to consider here. In 175 BC, there was a Greek ruler named Antiochus Epiphanes. And he ruled the area around Jerusalem, and he desecrated the temple by putting a statue of Zeus in the temple 
and other Greek gods to worship and told the Israelites, the Jewish people, you must, you must worship these gods. He also forced people to eat pigs, which was a complete defiling of their religion and their bodies. And he totally defiled the temple. It was so bad that it caused what was called the Maccabean Revolt. The Maccabean Revolt, which happened um, shortly after this desecration. It ticked them off so bad they said, you're out, we're going we're gonna to revolt against you. This was the fulfillment of the original prophecy of Daniel. It mentions seven and 62 weeks. Um, it, it's a, it's a, a, a moniker or a name for seven years and 62 times seven, so 400 plus years. Um, there's going to be a rebuilding of the temple, which is the second temple built by Herod. But Jesus makes a reference to another abomination of desolation that's going to look like the one of Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, this is what's interesting about Antiochus Epiphanes. His desecration of the temple was in conspiring with apostate Jewish people who have rejected God. As a matter of fact, he took a guy named Joshua and he made him the priest of the temple um, and changed his name, I think, to Jason. And so Jason was this uh, guy in cahoots with Antiochus Epiphanes. I'm going to say that 14 times. I'm going to butcher it eventually. Should I just say A.E.? Or Antiochus, maybe I'll just go with Antiochus. They, they conspired together to, to basically worship idols, and because of that, God caused the, the destruction of that temple by the Babylonian Empire. Now, that is a fulfillment of the prophecy of Daniel, but Jesus is referencing another abomination. An abomination is this. It's a detestable defiling and desecration of what is holy and what God has commanded to stay holy. There was a commentator that I read this week that said that this usually happens, as I said, by the people of God. So this Jewish priest, uh, placed in control of the temple by Antiochus, changed his name to Jason, and Jason, the Jewish Old Covenant Israelite, led the people in the temple to worship idols and commit detestable acts in the temple. And God's anger at pagan idol worship is pure, but when his people worship him wrongly, he calls it an abomination. And it's such an evil thing in his sight that it renders the temple desolate. It means that the presence of God leaves. There is a totality to the devastation. It's a final, total, and complete desolation and devastation. There's nothing to go back to, and you can't rebuild it and start over. The temple, of course, was rebuilt, uh, but the, the more uh, rebuilt after the first time it was destroyed, and then it was destroyed again in eighty seventy. But the temple being rebuilt now is useless and meaningless because the desolation of the presence of God, he's no longer there. He's left the building, so to speak. Nothing can go back, you can go back to and you can't rebuild and start over. So what is Jesus talking about? He's not talking about Antiochus Epiphanes, but by Jesus' hand, he is going to destroy the second temple. It's not a mistake. It's not something that happens outside of God's control. He is going to destroy it, but it's also going to be brought on by the apostate former people of God, the Jewish people of God that have turned against the Messiah. You could call the Pharisees, the scribes, all these people that we've talked about in the last several chapters. They're the ones that are going to be judged, and Jesus is going to destroy the temple 
Um, but it's going to be brought on by the apostate, formerly, uh, formerly um, known people of God. So the Romans are going to destroy Jerusalem and the temple in this second temple era. And they're going to set up Caesar worship. And it's going to be a complete and total desecration and devastation. It's going to be by Titus, who will be a future emperor. He lays besiege to Jerusalem. And there's already this chaos going on in, in Jerusalem by warring factions of, of Israelites, of Jewish people. But this siege was an incredible siege, probably uh, on a scale that the world has never seen since or never saw before. It resulted in war. It resulted in murder. It resulted in the betrayal of fellow citizens. It resulted in the famine that I mentioned, 20,000 people dead. And even, Josephus says, in cannibalism, People were cooking their own children and eating them. Anywhere from 1 to 1.1 million people were killed or enslaved during this period of siege and war. Now, I want you to think of the scale of that. There was only around 100,000 or so, maybe 70 to 100,000 people living in Jerusalem. So this whole area was almost completely wiped out. Most of the population of Jerusalem and the surrounding area was completely wiped out. And when Titus came to lay siege and then eventually attacked Jerusalem, he only left three Herodian towers standing, and it was a testimony to the might and superiority of the Roman Empire. I mentioned that I was in Italy this past summer, and there is a, this thing called the Titus Arch near the Roman Colosseum or in the Roman Colosseum, which celebrated the destruction of the once great city, Jerusalem. Now, I go into a little bit of the history because this particular destruction was the appearing of the Lord in judgment, the parousia. The appearing of the Lord in judgment was... Jesus, using the arm of the Roman army as his arm, I should say, of judgment, standing in judgment as he promised he would. He said, when you see the abomination of desolation, that's what it's going to look like. And if you read first century history, which sadly Christians haven't done and need to do better, um, you'll see that all these things happened just as Jesus had predicted. And he used the Roman army to destroy Jerusalem, to destroy the temple, and to end the visible sign of the old covenant, even though the new covenant was established in his blood at the cross. Jesus did appear. And it says, when the abomination of desolation is close, Jesus says to uh, the, the, the Christians, in particular his disciples at this time, you need to flee to the mountains. You need to go. Uh, many of the people that remembered and heeded the words of Christ later, a couple decades later, and when they saw the end of Jerusalem near, they fled. It's in history, Josephus talks about this, uh, that Christians fled to places like Pella and other places. They heeded the warning of Christ, and the future teaching that they, uh, or excuse me, the, uh, in the future, the teaching that they heard, they fled to safe zones, and they were able to stay away from the persecution. But the destruction was terrible. The, the times were horrific. On scale, you could say it was truly apocalyptic. 
we like to read the book of Revelation as it's going to happen in the future, and we like to add all the Hollywood stuff to it, and it seems like it's going to be a really messy apocalypse. But on scale, this event or the events that led up to the destruction of Jerusalem were capital A apocalyptic. I say all that because this might be a little controversial. The great tribulation has already happened. The great tribulation has already happened. It's not something that is yet to come, although there will be tribulation for people who claim Christ in this world. The tribulations uh, and persecutions of Christians will continue. However, I believe it will get less and less. The kingdom will grow more and more like a mustard seed and like leaven in bread. But the great tribulation has already happened. This time that we discussed here in the first century was apocalyptic beyond anything we could imagine. For at scale, it was worse than any war since and certainly lived up to the term great tribulation. The timing and description of the great tribulation matches the history of this time frame. If you read Josephus and others, you'll see that it's a perfect match, that everything that was predicted happened. It came about just as Jesus had said. From the beginning of the world until now, and it says in the text, and never will be, this thing is so bad that it will never happen again. For the sake of the elect, he says, I'm going to cut these days short. So the judgment was relatively swift by historical standards. No human being would have been, uh, been able to be saved if not kept short or this judgment wasn't kept short. And the scale of this will never be repeated in the history of humankind. Now notice I said scale. In pure numbers, because there's many more people, things that, that happen that have been on a uh, number scale higher, of course. But on the scale of what happened in the first century, that was the great tribulation. And we think uh, because of sheer numbers, but again, the scale and destruction of this particular destruction and judgment of Christ was almost total. Nothing like it has ever happened since on that scale. Now he says to remember that we have Christ now in the flesh, but he's not going to appear like that again. His appearance at the end of this particular section, he says, it's going to be the coming of the Son of Man. When you hear and see the word Son of Man in the text, it's a statement of judgment that Jesus is going to come to judge. And if others appear and claim to be Christ, they're going to be false. If others appear in distress claiming to be prophets, they will be false. They will never have power, or excuse me, they will have power, charisma, and will be good at deceiving even the elect. And Jesus says, don't believe it. Don't believe it. I am the Christ now in the flesh. I am here with you. And believe in, uh, believing in Jesus Christ who is here and now and with you in the flesh now is what you need to do. But when he returns in judgment, it's going to be like lightning. Now, I looked this up, and I tried to understand figuratively what he was meaning by this. He says that the lightning will come from the east, and it will shine as far as the west. And he says it will be like the days of Noah. I don't know if you have read your storybook Bible about the days of Noah, but it's a massive judgment. It's a fierce judgment. It's a complete and total judgment. And the abomination of desolation is going to have its consequences. 
It's going to destroy things. There's going to be a fierce, complete, and total judgment by Christ, and he is doing it. It's not an accident that Rome is there. It's the arm of God in, form, in the form of the Roman Empire destroying Jerusalem and judgment. He's so um, complete and done with this that he says, after the judgment, I'm going to leave the corpse for the Romans to pick over like vultures. Now, he says this because he wants us to understand something. There is a new covenant in his blood. There is a new people of Israel. His church for all who believe in the Messiah are his people, and they have been bought and purchased in his blood and paid for in a new covenant through his blood. As you read this passage, it can be a little bit of a, uh, an eye-opener. I would say this, history matters. History matters. Um, I'm a, a little bit passionate about this because for some reason that I can't understand, what we just read very clearly from the text of Scripture was hidden from me. Maybe it was hidden from you. Maybe you grew up in a church that taught different things than this, that this, uh, this thing that happened in AD 70, the destruction of the temple, destruction of Jerusalem, that's eh, kind of an important date in history, but it's not that important. There's nothing really going on there. It's huge. And I don't know if history was hidden um, from me or from you for nefarious purposes or we're just kind of willfully ignorant, but we need to know our history. I would tell you to go on, online and just look up the abomination of desolation and type in R.C. Sproul or type in uh, another teacher of the Reformed tradition and they can explain to you what the abomination of desolation is, maybe even better than I've just done it here. But for whatever reason, we need to know this. Can you, can you imagine why it's important? Like if you grew up thinking that the world is going to hell in a handbasket. Jesus is out there, but not really involved in the world. We're just to kind of white knuckle it until the end. Um, don't, don't have children. Don't build businesses. Don't grow the kingdom. Don't do the things and the work of the kingdom. Uh, kind of give lip service to them, but don't involve yourself in them. You know, you're, you're going to die and everything's going to die around you. Everything is headed for destruction and loss. I don't believe that anymore. I believe that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords now. I believe when he prayed that he wanted this world to become like the kingdom that is in heaven, I believe that he meant that. History matters. Study it and show yourself approved by comparing it with biblical text to know what was going on in these particular times. Second thing I wanted to take from this passage the people of God are usually the ones that bring on abominations. It's happening all around us. Um, my dad maybe said this, but some, some old boomer once told me that pagans are going to pagan. Like, they're going to do what pagans do. People who reject Christ are going to do what people who reject Christ do. I think I said that right. Pagans are going to pagan. But the people of God know better and right worship. They know that better and right worship is commanded. Now, right worship isn't a necessity for your salvation. Your salvation comes through faith alone in Christ alone. But in light of our salvation, we are commanded 
to rightly worship God. Now you would think Antiochus Epiphanes brings in a, a, a statue of Zeus into the temple and then starts making people worship it. Ah, that's kind of crazy. Like I've never been to a church where they brought in a statue of Zeus. Anybody? It'd be an interesting place to visit once. We don't do it that way now. But there's idolatry entering into our churches. You know what's interesting? And this is about me and others who would um, um, claim to be a pastor or a person who leads a body of Christ. Usually the people bringing in the statues, the idols, are Jasons. They're the people of God. They're the priests of God. If someone in here is named Jason, I apologize, but that's in the text, okay? Um, they're the ones bringing it in. They're the ones that are marching in the idolatries and saying to the people, it's okay to bow down and worship these things. It's okay. Um, there's so many things going on in our culture right now that are abominations in the house of the Lord. I'm not talking about the building. I'm talking about the people of God. Uh, pride flags, gay mirage or marriage, the twisting of scripture, a complete lack of worship, meaning a man-centered approach to the text and to God, where I'm going to go and worship, but it's really for me and what I get out of it. It's for my emotional centeredness. It's for my feelings to be, to be met. Instead of coming to worship in a God-centered way, saying, God, what would you have for me today? How can I obey you and please you because I love you, because you've saved me? We're called to worship rightly. You know how easy worshiping rightly is? It's two words, repentance and belief. It's repentance and belief. It doesn't matter what your sin is. Your sin can be forgiven. It needs to be repented of, and you need to believe and trust that Christ has paid for it, that his blood has covered it, and that is right worship. Right worship isn't being fancy. It isn't having the right music or, or a, a, an eloquent pastor or whatever it is. Worshiping rightly is understanding there is a God, I'm not him, and I come to him in repentance and belief. Third, there's a new temple. The new temple is Jesus, and you could say the new temple is his people. Jesus is the new temple, and we, followers of Christ, believers and trusters in Jesus Christ, are the testimony to his presence, his guidance, his provision, and his salvation. And wherever we go, the temple goes with us. We are the temple of Christ. We don't need a building. Matter of fact, um, buildings are completely uh, the rebuilding of the temple will be a completely worth, worthless endeavor if it's ever accomplished. It won't work. There's nothing special about it. It'll be four walls or how many ever walls, maybe an altar inside of it, but it will have no significance at all. Matter of fact, there was this guy, I think it was the third century, so third or fourth century after Christ. Um, I can't remember his name all of a sudden, but he was a, one of the successors of Constantine. And they called him an apostate. Because as an emperor, he walked away from God. He refused to obey God, and he said, this isn't true. And he said, in order to prove that the Bible isn't true and that Jesus' words aren't true, he tried to build a temple, rebuild the temple in the third century. It was almost as a mockery. 
And everyone thought, oh, this is interesting. This is the most powerful man in the world or one of the most powerful men in the world. Surely he'll be able to build this building without much problem. So he tried to start rebuilding the temple and literal fire from heaven came down and destroyed his efforts. It's never been rebuilt. God will not be mocked. The new temple is Jesus and his people. The old temple and the old covenant are done away with. We have access to the Father only through Jesus Christ, the Son, and the Messiah. The new temple is Jesus and his people. Fourth, there's going to be false prophets and Christ. There were in the first century. They continue to this very day. In this particular passage, the use of fear to gain clicks and followers. They would spread rumors of wars. They would do signs and wonders. They would talk about things happening. They would claim even to be Christ. It was a use of some fear to gain uh, followers to their movement. But we have the Christ of the new covenant and we have his word. We have his word. There is misleading teaching that has proliferated about the end throughout the church, especially in our culture. And that misleading teaching has consequences. It has gutted the church in many ways because we just want to get right and feel good because the end is nigh. You ever wondered what's going to happen if the world continues to exist and grow and, and see the kingdom grow for the next 10,000 years? And we've been living our life as if it might be done uh, tomorrow, that Jesus might destroy everything tomorrow. What if it goes for 10,000 years? It said that every nation is going to run to Mount Zion. Every nation is going to be worshipers of, of Jesus Christ before he comes. The gospel is going to have a conquest over the whole earth. And of course, that means for salvation. But this is critical. It also means for the restoration of all things. That means your favorite fishing spot is going to be a hundred times better than it was after Jesus restores it. This, this physical world will be restored. The cosmos will be restored. Jesus is restoring all things back to himself, including the heart's of humans. But there is a kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven, and we are in the process of that right now. Jesus doesn't want you to fear. He doesn't want you to uh, white-knuckle your life. He doesn't want you to run away from the kingdom that he's called you to help uh, uh, build. He wants you to keep your eyes on him because he is the king of kings and lord of lords. When we come to the communion table, we remember that reality. We remember that Jesus can judge, and when he judges, it's, it's real. It's fierce. Sometimes it's a result of the abomination of desolation of his own people, apostatizing, turning away from him, worshiping idols when they have the true and living God in, in presence in their lives and also in the words of the text of scripture. We can learn about him. We can discover more about him. We can worship him in spirit and in truth. And when we come to the communion table, we're remembering that he is the Lord of Lords and King of Kings over all things. He is the final judge and his judgment for those who have repented and believe and trusted in Christ is complete. 
This is what his judgment is. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. Your sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. You have been saved by Christ, and therefore you stand in good order with God. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, we invite you to the communion table. You can take the bread representing the body that was broken for you. You can dip it in the wine or the juice, uh, which represents the blood that was shed for you. And you can remember that while Christ is judge of, uh, the judge of all judges and the king of all kings, he's also been merciful to you. Remember what he's done for you on the cross this day. Let's pray. Father, I have uh, many times not given you enough credit. I've lacked a zeal in worship because I believe that maybe you were just waiting for everything to go completely off the rails, and then maybe you would show up one day to rapture us out of all this trouble. What I know now is that all things are being sovereignly controlled and directed by you. You are saving people to yourself, that many people will come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and all the glory of heaven and earth will be given to you. Everything is under your sovereign direction and control, and we praise you for it. For those here that may not know you as their Lord and Savior, I ask God that you would save them this very day, that they would come to this table remembering what Jesus has done on the cross. They would avoid the judgment that they're headed for without Christ. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.